right. Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. I'm Jay Martin. I'm sitting down today with Peter Grandage. Peter, welcome back. It's good to see you again. Uh, absolutely a pleasure to come back and speak with you as well, Jay. So let's uh, let's try to pull in a big thread immediately, Peter. Um, your background super diverse, a bit of a legend in the stock business and in the sports business. You know, you've you've seen a lot in your career. What are you what are you seeing right now? And this could be in the markets and the economy. You left the sports business for a lot of the, the cultural shifts that were occurring. What are you seeing right now shifting in the United States that has you the most concerned, Peter? Well, I would say outside of the Civil War, Jay, I don't think America has been more divided socially and politically. Uh, it has only gotten worse. There is really no middle ground anymore. Uh, people are basically leaning or hard left or leaning and hard right. Uh, there is a sense from one side that the other side is just impossible to work with and everything that's wrong with America. And so no matter what happens in November, even if the Republicans do win back the House and or even the Senate, uh, I think if you look at how the left has been during the time that they've controlled all three branches of government, and they seem a bit like sore winners that they should have gotten a lot more and they're not happy now, how they'll be if they actually lose the house, I think it's only going to make things more divided. And before anybody jumps to conclusions and say, oh, this guy sounds like he's a Trumpster. I'm not a Trumpster. A lot of things Trump stood for is great, but he's too toxic. His manner and the way that he's gone about it has probably made what could have been much better a lot not as good because of the way he carries himself and so forth and so on. And I think the other big problem that we have, and I think this is a difficulty for our investment community, and Jay, I'm only speaking about US. I don't really follow Canada at all anymore, and I don't really have any relations in the investment community anymore. So I only want to speak about the US investment community. I have seen uh, perhaps the least understanding and experience by the average so-called financial advisor about geopolitics than since the day I entered this business 38 years ago. I think the vast majority of advisors here, many of which have only been in the business since the last financial crisis, don't understand the geopolitical ramifications of things that are happening around the world. The biggest one is one that I think is gonna be a story you're gonna be talking with your guests in the coming months more and more about, even though I know some of the guests that you have at your show have already foreseen this. And that is the BRIC countries introducing a new alternative currency to, to the dollar. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's absolutely coming. But that, the fact that the United States, I think would be in its least favorable uh, liked in the world since I've been in the business, I think a lot of the geopolitics and the politics here at home uh, are not being taken into account. And they're all on the belief, or most of them are, that there's this great wizard behind the curtain named Jay Powell. And uh, when in reality, him and the Fed have been a little bit more than monetary heroin pushers for a decade or longer. And that's the only thing that's really sustained a smaller and smaller group in America doing well. So it's a long-winded answer to your question, but I wanted to paint really the big, big picture, which keeps me, uh, and I work from that downwards. No, that's that's perfect. I love asking questions like that because then I can just pull on threads, right? And uh, where I want to go, therefore, 
is let's talk about the, the BRIC currency, right? And if we're looking at the BRIC nations versus Western nations, correct me if, if you think I'm wrong here, we're, we're kind of looking at resource-based economies versus debt-based economies, right? And so do you have any forecasts on what developments you expect to see next, right? Are we looking at sort of a collective basket of currencies uh, backed by a hard asset like gold or oil? Or what does this look like from your perspective? Well, we've seen outspokenness now in the past 90 days by both Russia and China on this matter. It's no longer just whispers, it's actual statements and declaring it's not an if, it's only a question of when story. Yeah. And then we see reports and we obviously see it demonstrated by putting getting closer with Saudi Arabia here and China. We hear Saudi Arabia considering hard to join the BRIC nations as well. So it fits right into what you said. It's more of a, the commodities group getting up against the Western paper debt hangers. And uh, so I I argue, and, I, and I'm, I'm not a, I don't have anything to sell in gold. I'm not in gold coins. I don't have a gold newsletter or anything of that nature. I don't have uh, cabins in the woods or ammo to sell. But it's obvious since two of those biggest countries have been major buyers of gold for years, yeah. while they divested themselves from American securities, treasuries, and paper, speaking about Russia and China, I would be hard pressed to say that if we do have this alternative choice, that they wouldn't get gold, wouldn't somehow be partially at least involved in that backing of whatever it is. And if that was the case, would the West not have a massive incentive to suppress the price of gold if gold was what was backing the currency created by the BRIC nations? What do you think? Well, I'm going to go back and put my old hat on from the days of standing at Cambridge 10 or 15 years ago when I used to argue with a certain guy that used to work at another website who used to tell us there's no manipulation. We're all tinfoil hat guys. You and your GATA group, Pete, they're all nuts, yada, yada, yada. And what have we seen in the last 10 years? We've just seen it again, more convictions of people who have been manipulating uh, the gold market. Uh, I've always believed that it would be in the best interest for a company for a country like the United States that's so dependent on a stronger dollar and, and, and debt to make sure that the gold price doesn't get out of hand where people start to flee the dollar or US assets. Not that they're sitting there every day and every $30 down day is them manipulating it, but they certainly never had an incentive. Plus in the financial service business, Jay, gold is kryptonite. You're, you're just not gonna, people keep saying, how come I don't hear uh, the mainstream brokerage firms in the U.S. talking about gold. Well, that's like asking a Chevy guy to talk about a good car that the Ford makes. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just not going to do it. So, uh, yeah, I, I think you could see that as a possibility. Uh, supposedly, the United States still has a large gold quantity, but I think it's a much bigger problem now. I, I think what we've realized, and it took the pandemic uh, and of course, a terrible overreaction in the pandemic would clearly proven that all the lockdown stuff and all wasn't the answer. But we learned that we really don't control much of our own destiny here in the US. We really have to depend on others for mostly everything that we need from medical to energy to everything else. And a lot of those places where we're dependent on, they're not exactly our best friends, if not outright uh, dislike us or hate us. So. I, I just think that there's there's a lot more going for the BRIC nations going forward 
because they control key cards. We learned that now because of the energy situation mm -hmm. than a country like the United States, which is getting to the point where everybody's talking, oh, if the Fed pivots and they get easing and maybe they're going to print another five or 10 trillion. Well, it all goes back to that question that I've had for a while now. We have almost 31 trillion in debt, eh? If we boost it up to 35 or 40 and throw a 5% interest rate on there, we're going to have half of our all tax income just to pay our interest. It's a non-starter. And, th and that's why the argument of them pivoting eventually has to happen because they can't live with that other factor. But pivoting doesn't exactly mean that everything just returns honky-dory and we live what I can only describe as a Goldilocks atmosphere now. It's unbelievable from the span, Jay, in June, when people like this sitting at home and biting their nails to now talking about it's all clear and happy days are here again. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen anything. I thought it was an overreaction to the downside. And I clearly believe we've seen most of the movement to the upside. So I, I, I think there's a lot more to come. And, and I think geopolitics, which hasn't been in the equation for a lot of financial people in their short careers, is going to play a much bigger role in our economy going forward. So then walk me through, do you have a perspective on what a country like Germany, you know, is going to do come cold temperatures in the winter? They've publicly stated now that Germans should prepare to have, um, to have blackouts right through the winter season. They're going to be in a, in a tricky spot here. The easy move, if you're a politician, is to say, look, we're going to realign ourselves in some way with the East in exchange for a steady flow of energy that we need. It's really sort of sanctions within the West versus energy, food, and fuel in the East. I mean, that's the battle that's going on. What are your thoughts, Peter? Well, I've spoken in recent weeks through my blog, which is really the only way that I regularly communicate now, that there will be a forced settlement, whether Ukraine likes it or not, right. Russia. Right. I mean, Germany was brought into this kicking and screaming. They did everything they could not to do anything in terms of sanctions at all because they made their bed and realized it, that yeah. it, it's with Russia. And uh, Russia knows that. Don't, don't bury fool Putin. Putin is not a stupid man. He may be a madman in some people's mind, but he's not a stupid man. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and, and I don't think we're going to have to wait till we see people shivering and standing over, you know, burning trees before those actions are taken. The first hint of a, of a winter or and Germany's not alone in this. Germany is not the only country in Europe that, that's going to face it. But if you stop and think where Germany was just 10 or 20 years ago as an economic power in Europe yeah. and what they've fallen down to now, it should give you an inkling to anybody that thinks it can't happen to a country like the United States. Take a look, because Germany was actually in a much better position overall and everything than we were and look what's transpired and by the way just add that it's the beginning of the end as we know the european unification the european union will not be able to continue three or five years from now in the manner that it has and and, and i think the final straw will be when we go through this much worse energy crisis that they're going to have and people are literally not able to uh heat themselves and and, and a lot of other issues and you know, the other unforeseen thing was the Rhine River getting to the point where they can't even transport what energy they have from one place to another. And they're not alone in this. I think it's also important, Jay, if I may just add in, the United States has its own uh, providing energy issues. 
You know, I like to joke, and I say it half only jokingly, that our, our grid is so old, Thomas Edison installed some of it. We, we have some serious problems here. Uh, and we've seen it now with the most recent heat and the drought and all. And, and again, these are all issues that I don't think the typical financial advisor or group, when they sit down and think about what should we be doing with people's investment dollars, are taken into account. And I think it's going to come back to bite them. Okay. So I'm on the same page with you about the future of the EU. And based off what you just shared, massive developments could begin occurring as early as this fall, this winter, when the energy situation, call it a crisis, becomes real. And civilians of countries like Germany are going to have to ask the question, what's the definition of an ally, right? And, and who should we be allied with? If what I'm worried about is heating my house and putting food on the table tomorrow, right? What's the definition of an ally? Um, and it is very foreseeable, therefore, that big changes could occur as soon as this winter. You agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I, I didn't know that was your thought, so I don't think we pre-discussed this or anything, but I'm absolutely in your camp. And I think, again, that's one of the issues that people are not prepared for. Now, there are some side effects from that. So one of the reasons the dollar has been strong, it's not just because everybody wants to be in the United States, it's great. It's just that Europe is even more of a mess right now than we are, okay? Yeah. But eventually, when it's recognized that everybody's in a mess, it's only a degree, that is gonna be the ideal time for the BRIC people to come along and say, hey, we got the solution. Uh, we are the future, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, you, I, I think, like you said, when somebody realizes they can't get baby formula, they can't do this, they can't farm, they can't do that, the other side that we're told is so bad and so evil isn't going to look so bad. It's going to become a necessary evil. So uh, I'm with you in that regard. And like I, I agree, this fall, it'll start this fall. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now talk to uh, your point about most financial advisors not having a firm grasp of the implications of these geopolitical threads as they're unraveling, because I imagine a lot of my viewers you know, have their money managed by some of these financial advisors. So what's the fallout? What's the risk of having, um, having I don't know, young and experienced or just ignorance is bliss, uh, financial advisor managing your wealth and not understanding how Europe may shift, how the BRIC uh, currency may evolve? What's, its, what's at risk here? So, so I can get more hate email because every time I talk about this subject, I get it. And I know they're from financial people is. Bring it on. I have argued that a good percentage of financial advisors, and again, I'm only speaking in the US. That's the only thing I have experience with. Right. I have coined them the don't worry, be happy crowd. I have stated that uh, they could be tossed off our Empire State Building and all the way down, they'd all say the same thing. Hey, so far, so good. Okay, <laughs> and, and and there's a particular network down here, a financial network, which is really their home base. It's always it's always good. It's always great. You know, uh, dare you say anything otherwise? Okay, that's what almost two thirds of financial advisors have only been in the business uh, since the last financial crisis. Mm. And so I argued, and that was the reason why it turned so so bearish last fall. Is it? You learned how to drive on a one-way street. Listen, I don't blame them. I'm not saying that they purposely know that they're bad and stupid and they're doing this on purpose and robbing people. No, they were weaned and taught 
basically a car goes one way. You step on the gas pedal and it goes. And by the way, if you happen to hit a bump, there's this tow truck driver called the Fed. They come along, they get a little quick fix and you're back running down the road again. And that's what that's what they've been used to. And the public uh, has grown accustomed to that as well. Uh, Individual investors cannot be guiltless. They are, after all, there's more information now, Jay, to teach oneself and to learn than when I started in the business. So you can't just say that, oh, I just totally trusted that person. I doubt they go to a doctor without seeking some knowing how good they were or some experience or they just pick a lawyer out of the yellow pages. So don't throw it all on your financial advisor. But the problem we had, Jay, is a year, 18 months ago, we had 21, 22-year-old internet sensations that were gurus that were born out of the pandemic who really is only most difficult problem they had up to that point in their life was algebra class just a few years ago in high school. And here they were, and people were following them as if you know they were a messiah. And I, so, I, so I really, really think, and, and, and I, I know you've been around long enough, and I know your dad would agree with me, experience is normally a good asset. Sometimes it's not, but more times than not, the more experience you have. The difficulty is in finances, sometimes you don't get twice a bat. You only get one a bat. And we've seen that recently with a lot of the younger people who rushed into the cryptocurrencies and saw literally a couple trillion dollars lost by people who can ill afford. The stories you're hearing of the losses, the actual people who took the losses are not 65, 70 year old men like me, we worked millions. A lot of it were young people who sounded like a quick way to the riches and they went in it all. So there's a lot, a lot of pain still to be out there. And like I just said, is uh, it doesn't mean because someone's young, you don't deal with them, but keep in mind their limited experience may hurt you in a much bigger game now that's being played that really wasn't taken into account a couple of years ago. Geopolitics, we've seen it now because of COVID and we've seen it because of this energy crisis. And Jay, you were around enough to remember when just 10 or 15 years ago, Wall Street sold globalization is the key to everything. The whole world needs to go global. And the net result was we now suffer a lot of issues because of that. Yeah. And we all, we all suffer from recency bias to some degree, right? Financial advisors, investors the most, right? We frequently, and this is something, I guess, as you said, I mean, you have to learn it the hard way. I have at least twice. You uh, confuse a bull market with your own savvy, right? And uh, and uh, that's a painful lesson to learn. But okay, so but you're right. It's it's the every day the market goes up is affirmation that the next day it will do the same. So it's almost realistic to expect that status quo, right? It, so a, a good point to make on this, Jay. I think it'd be worth uh, time. So when I entered the business in the early 1980s, the stock market for 20 or 25 years was stuck between 700 and 1,000 on the Dow. In fact, there was a famous Business Week article that was a front page of, of the Business Week that said equities are dead. And people were petrified. Interest rates had just been 20%. Inflation was 15 20%. Howard Ruff had the war room. And it was hard to find somebody that was bullish. And this young man out of Georgia named Robert Prechter Jr. came out and said, hey, I got this basically new technical analysis. And the Dow's going to 3,700. And people looked at him and said, Dow 3,700, 
For 30 years, we've been stuck between 700. People, it was inconceivable. And even in the few years early when it started to go, people said, that's nah, not. And then the crash came in 87. They said, see, I told you, I knew this guy was crazy. And we went down a little bit, but five years later, we were way past 3,700. But it took several years for people to see the change and wanted to stay in the old way. Well, now for almost 40 years, we had a bull market clearly in bonds that never stopped. And we had basically a bull market in stocks that were interrupted with some very serious, but rather short-term down drafts or, or declines or, or, or swoons, whatever you want to call it, but not long enough for people to even have to start thinking about, I got to reallocate or, or rethink itself. Yeah. And so the first time we've come down now from these highs last year, especially we, we saw stocks that were 100 or 200 trading at 20 or 30 and six months later, it's not surprising that they rebounded. Okay. That, that, that shouldn't be a surprise to everybody. The question is always this. I got it at Cambridge shows. I got it no matter where I was. And I think people will always ask this and say this. Hey, you guys that give out advice in the days that I used to. You always tell us when to buy. You don't tell us when to sell. Uh, and I always had a simple answer, Jay. Some people thought it was too simplistic, but I really think it's the bow. And I always say, listen, can you today, forgetting every reason you had gone into it or whatever, could you take the money you now have in that group, sector, stock, whatever, and first buy it today? And Jay, as soon as they start to pause and go, oh, I don't, that's your first signal. Because that's all that's going to matter is the future. And the hardest thing for someone to say, whether they're an advisor or an investor, and hubris and pride get in the way is what Fonzie couldn't say several decades. I was wrong. Okay. And like you just admitted, I was wrong more than two times, Jay, in 38 years. All right. And cost me millions of dollars. And when I look back at it, it's because I wasn't willing to change and take that attitude when I first buy it now. Okay. Yes. So I think that's a great way and a good test for everybody. So no matter what has happened up until now, if today was just starting today, would you make the same or hold the same asset allocation that you have now? You hit on something that's so important. It's that creating rules is vital, but sticking to them, right, is much harder and much more important. And that's your rule, right, of when to sell. We can all create a rule when to sell. And then once the price starts going up, we can ignore our rule and say, it's going to keep going, right? Let's hang on to this, right? And it's sort of reasonable to have that expectation. I mean, I like the trend of all the young retail investors that suddenly turned their attention to the market over the last two and a half years, whether the crypto market or the equities market, because, you know, the energy was right. The energy said, it's time we started participating in capital gains, right? That's a great thought to have. But then to hunt down opportunities based off of a fear of missing out because your peers are doing it. So you pile in, that's the incorrect approach, right? So the energy was right. The activity was a bit misdirected. But chasing a market up, like, I don't know how you deal with that because it's it's a reasonable thing to do from the standpoint of, we recognize patterns. Human beings are great at pattern recognition. And if we can look at the equities market for the last two years, five years, 10 years, and see that exactly what you said, it does one thing, it goes up. Sometimes it corrects and then it goes up again, right? And that's what we know what to do. Then it's a reasonable it's a reasonable expectation for a new investor to assume that's going to keep on occurring until they get wiped out. And if and when that happens, it, you know, it's a hard lesson. Maybe people just have to learn. But 
you know, as I'm listening to you and obviously I'm thinking aloud processing this and how I would communicate to a new investor on the scene is like, sometimes the best trade and the best skill is patience, right? And even marathons are one inch by inch. And if you can get that little gain, never be scared to take profits. I mean, it's so easy to hate on yourself for, you know, you, you sell a 30% gain and you end up watching everybody else participate in a 70% gain. Sure. Right. You can feel like you lost. You didn't. You're up 30%. That's phenomenal. Right. Take, take the profits, take the profits patience, nobody, the markets aren't a get rich fast scheme. They're a go broke fast scheme or a get rich slow scheme and, and marathons as in life, it's one inch by inch, you know, first base, second base, very rarely do we just hit the home run anyways. So you brought up and you can, you can see what's left of it, of my sports life. But for 20 yeah. years, I worked uh, with professional athletes and teams. I was with the New York giants for 13 years and my last half of my career was better than my first half, not just because I had more experience, but I learned something there. Every week, the Giants and, and every NFL team had the same thing. They had a game plan. They literally started Tuesday after their Sunday game, planning for this next Sunday game, and then sat with the players and told them, this is what we're expecting and so forth and so on. And this is what you need to do if this happens and so forth. And then even if that game plan went awry in the first half, they would go back into the second half and try to make changes to that. And what I learned there was they weren't going from the seat of the pants. They weren't saying, even though they had a bunch of great guys in that locker room who you could just say, hey, you're so good. Go out there and throw the ball to each other. Maybe we'll win. No, this is how you have to do it. And yet even today, and I still work with, a, with a, a planning group here in the U.S., I still find most people don't have a real true financial plan. Now, they may go to somebody and they'll now these days, when I started, it was a legal pad and a pen. Now they throw it in a computer and 200 pages get printed out and bells and graphs and charts and all about stuff and all. But most of those people don't have a plan. They're going to make their next decisions based on emotions, based on what's happening in the yeah. markets, not a pre-plan of what they had before. What are they going to do if this happens? And here, let me give you an example. So I used to speak at your great shows and I would talk about a stock and I am certain, and I know it for a fact because I learned it from people over the years hearing from them. When they heard me speak, they didn't say, let me take the worst case scenario of this guy's stock pick and see what happens. No. Oh my God, this sounds great. And if I put X amount in, I can end up with X. I can get the girl the car. I can get my wife a ring. And, and they made the best case scenario decision on it. Yeah. You need to make the worst case scenario decision. And if you can live with the worst case, you're good. Because here's the thing that most financial advisors don't know how to measure. Because they don't have to deal with this as an investor does. And that's mental anguish. See, when I've lost money early on, I got over it. But once I realized how I lost the money and how my decisions were actually stupid or not well thought out, the anguish from that mm. bothered me for a much longer time. And I don't think when people go in and get advice, they look at the worst case scenario because that would mean you'd have to figure out there could be some mental anguish. And we don't want mental anguish. We want it. You never see a commercial from a financial firm, at least here in the US, where at the end the people are going, I hope this works. No, they're literally happy ever after. They're, they got their boats, their houses, and 
They use wording to sound like they can guarantee you winning without actually saying that. And that's the thing I don't think people prepare for. And I have to say one thing. I think whether if you had the most bullish guy on now or a woman with me, ardently, this is a whole different game than 20 or 30 years ago, Jay. This has changed dramatically. First of all, half of the money that's in the U.S. markets now are in non-actively managed funds. So that group is really just, it can't count that money. It's only going to move big time one way or another, depending on how the rest of the half goes. But that other half, 80 or 90% of it's being driven by some sort of computer analysis, whether it's an algo trader just trading headlines or someone using mathematical quantitative analysts and all. Very few people are still approaching the market like they did 30 or 40 years ago. I want to be a part owner of XYZ. I think they're going to sell more widgets or do better service. And somebody's going to pay more money for my stock now for that. Yeah. That game has all changed. And so with that comes tremendous volatility. And people tend to do, like you know, you know, get real excited. And I always like to do this line. Oh man, I, I am the smartest guy in the world. And I hate my financial advisor. No, I'm the smartest guy in the world. I hate my finance. And yeah. And they're all doing it from the seat of the pants. So that's why I really think you hit on something else. You really have to have a written or hardcore plan that takes into both the positives and the negatives that can happen and how you will react to it. So you don't let the emotion of the day impact you on that decision. Yeah, it was one of the first, first uh, like common denominators I realized when I started this podcast, to be honest, I started interviewing people like you for a living. And every, every week I would get to sit down with you know, two or three pros who have been in the business for decades longer than I had and just way more experience. And obviously I was cherry picking those that had survived and prospered decade over decade. And the common thread with everybody is that they had very specific rules and that's easy to come up with rules, but following them when your emotion takes over, that's the hard part, right? When the price goes up or down, right? You, you want to react. We're very good at reacting to near-term news flow. And then remembering your time horizon, right? Like I you know, I'm in a couple of positions right now and I don't ever recommend what people buy. I, I don't, I'm not ever hope to ever be in that business, but often I'll share if I've taken a position in something, knowing what my risk tolerance, my available capital or my time horizon are, I make certain decisions. And like, if I'm in a, I'm a, I'm in a handful of gold development stories right now and they're all down and I'm not losing sleep because my time horizon isn't three months, you know, it's not six months. Right. But, you know, if I mention a story here and my viewers jump in and the price corrects before anything else happens, you know, we're, we're quick to jump to conclusions, right? And lose sight of the time horizon. And um, I think that's very, very important. Okay. Jay, so let me give you one, let me give you one example. I don't want you to lose. I know you wanted to ask a question, but let me give yeah. you an example. Because this particular yeah. market that I'm very high on myself, the uranium market. Mm -hmm. Right now, the fundamentals for uranium have turned 180 degrees. Uh, Barring a major catastrophe again in some nuclear reactor plant or the total world imploding and everybody's trying to find wood and a piece of meat to eat to survive, it's very hard to see why over time uh, uranium should go up in price. The need for nuclear is going to play more in a role and companies like a chemical or somebody that's well established should do well over time. What's stopping people from that is... Things like, and I don't want to take away because I know you're very involved in digital media and all and all, but I think people are watching too much intraday and are on Twitter all day and reading about 20 guys and it's up a day and then it's down. And, 
And they don't understand that these are businesses and even the biggest of businesses can't have positive news every day and certain things. And they, our, our horizon has gotten shorter. When I entered the business, the average research re report had a three to five year outlook. If you said to anybody now, most people, hey, I like this for this name of the company and we, here's the reasons. And over the next three to five years, before you can even say another sentence, they go, whoa, three to five years. I can't wait three to five years, you know, even for a double, you know, I, I my things double three or five days or maybe three to five months. But, you know, I think the other yeah. problem is that people have, because of the way everything is with instantaneous news and things of that nature and all, you know, in the old days, but even before people used to have to call the broker to get a price or wait to the newspaper at the end of the day. Now, they may get thrown off because they're sitting online and they're reading something and something that really wouldn't affect them if they didn't hear it gives them an emotional scare and they don't have that plan and boom, they make a change. So yeah. I think we need to give ourselves an understanding that we still are buying into part ownerships of businesses and businesses have ups and downs. And normally it takes longer than we first expected to be successful. That's so important. And you hit on something, right? Yeah, I'm in digital media, but you noticed I didn't ask you once about uh, what the equities market did last week, what the gold price did last week, because it's irrelevant, right? We've talked about culture wars, currency trends, geopolitical events, long-term trends that create long-term differences and change. And I completely agree with you. We label ourselves as investors, and I don't put myself in this camp or yourself, but often people label themselves as investors, but then they think like traders, like day traders or swing traders, right? And, and get themselves in trouble as a consequence. Um, back to the Iranian market, because you brought it up, I completely agree with you. I mean, one of two things has to happen in theory, either the lights go out or the price goes up over time, right? I mean, that's what we're looking at here. Um, let's just, maybe let's wrap with this a little bit, Peter. You know, what, what do you like about the Iranian market? And what I mean is, are there certain geographies that you look towards? Are there certain project stages that you look towards? Any counsel or advice for anybody who's curious about the uranium sector? Well, I think this will fit for not only uranium, but I'm also a big believer in gold. And I'm a very big believer long-term on taking advantage of the retreat in the copper price. Mm. The difference now than 20 or 30 years ago when I managed hedge funds and come to great shows like yours and all, we could have spin a globe in your office, did close our eyes and hit it. And we're at a country we basically landed on. We go, hey, we can go there. You can't say that anymore in the resource business. We're very, very restricted now. It's becoming less and less. I'll give you an example. I've watched some of the biggest CEOs of major copper and base metal companies and even gold in recent weeks start to openly talk about places like Chile and all about, they may, it may become much tougher to mine there, they may nationalize, et cetera. And why I bring that up is geographically where we look is important. Mm -hmm. And now we learned, I think it's something like 50 million pounds we need to run our nuclear reactors here in the USJ. And I think right now America produces almost zero. Yeah. So again, if we're gonna do all this, there's gonna have to be a revamping because outside of Canada uh, and maybe Australia, some of the other places that uranium is, is, is found hopefully in use is not exactly the best of friends of, the, of America. And I think a lot of that's gonna even change more because of 
my concerns about the geopolitical we spoke about. So where you're at is important. And then of course, to understand in that particular market, there's so few players. I mean, there's so few major producers, uh, players, et cetera, that realistically, there's gonna be a couple companies that dominate. And for me, if you're gonna be a believer in uranium, you have to own chemical. There's just no way around it. Mm -hmm. Now, is, can chemical go from 30 cents to $5 with some junior may or may not because it's, you know, it's not, but I'm not really worried about a loss of principle there. So mm -hmm. I, I, I think where you look and the, and the mining industry, which has not thrown a lot of money at CapEx across the board for a long period of time now, if the world wants half, just half of what it says or what it pictures 10 or 20 or 30 years from now, it isn't in any shape. There hasn't been a major opening of a copper new mine in the world in two years. Yeah. I mean, so if we, if we want all this stuff, we want electric vehicles, we want to have all of this and all, uh, we're also going to have to recognize we're going to have to be willing uh, to either go places or in within our own area, allow mining where maybe somebody used to say, well, you know, there's a turtle there or something or an owl and we can't go there. And that's going to be the other uh, bat the battle. So not just going to be political, they're going to be economical as well. I'm with you. I'm with you. Look, Peter, it was great catching up with you. Thanks so much for coming back on. Listen, Cambridge was the single greatest joy I have. I miss Vancouver and all the Canadian cities. And if I can ever get back in without having to take the shot, I'm yeah. coming to see you. I love it. I love it. Well, the invitation's open, man. So I hope that happens. All Thank right. you, Jay. God bless and give my regards to your dad. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.